Well, good morning, everybody. It's the 3CR Gardening Program, and I'm Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants at Mount Macedon, uh, and also now hopefully famous of the YouTube channel The Haughty Culturalists. Um, if you haven't been in, have a go. Um, and this morning we have two people from the other side of Melbourne from where I have come from. Um, Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Good morning, Jeremy. How are you? Good morning, Stephen. Uh, good morning, everyone. I guess it's pretty up there at the moment, as it's, it is pretty up my way. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, um, the uh, liquid amber is just building up, and mm. the, the beach is just beginning to turn as well. Yeah. So the, the absolute peak of spring, I'd say, right now. You mean autumn? Ah, autumn. <laughs> yeah. Are you out of oh, that, yet, Jeremy? Yeah, that, that's what comes of not having an alarm clock that, that goes off. And I, I got up uh, three quarters of an hour late and yeah. I missed brekkie. And oh. So I'm going to be grumpy all morning. Oh, no. Be nice to the <laughs> listeners, please. <laughs> now, we've also got Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery, also in the Dandenongs. How are you this morning? Um, um, very well, thank you, Stephen. It's such a beautiful autumn morning. Oh. It's really the best of autumn has to offer, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. I, I was taking a tour for four days uh, for Australians studying abroad, but we weren't abroad. Mm. Uh, we're starting small again, uh, around the Macedon Ranges mainly, although we did do one day out to Lambley, to a beautiful garden called Bankhouse in New Lynn, and to Simon Rickart's garden. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had one day out there. The rest of the time was up on Mount Macedon proper, basically. And, my God, some of the gardens are just looking absolutely outrageous at the moment. That's right. Well, we had that beautiful wet summer. Yeah. So yeah. The, the trees are holding a lot of leaves and the leaves aren't damaged. And, and touch wood, we haven't had too much wind yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, it's being a lovely protracted, drawn-out um, autumn. So let's hope people are enjoying it. So uh, I certainly know I am, uh-huh. uh, although the weather's supposed to start changing today, I believe. So That's right. Later yeah. in the day. Yeah. Now, gentlemen, have you got any announcements to make? Is there anything going on in the world that we should know about? I don't think so. Not, not immediately. No. I'm sort of building up Peter Husler, who's one of Melbourne's great clivia breeders, is going to have a sale at my place in, oh, fantastic. in um, October. Oh, well, it's worth putting in the diary, though. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Peter's uh, clivias, clivias, I don't care what you say, although I do prefer clivia myself. Yeah. Um, they are a wonderful group of plants, and he has an amazing array. Oh, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I bought yeah. a green-flowered one from him a couple of years ago, yeah. and I think it was an extra mortgage on the house, but it was a, it's a magnificent thing. Yeah. And uh, I told myself when I bought it, actually, that compared to the first yellow ones that came out on the market, I remember paying 
retail $50 each for those yeah. 20 years ago. Well, the price I paid for this, I guess, was on a comparative level. Yeah. Uh, it just sounded a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of understandable, though, isn't it? So it's a lot of, um, a lot of breeding goes oh. into these things. Yeah. Look, I think people need to appreciate the, the value of what's behind the propagation of a plant. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, certainly with things like clivias, uh, apparently they're not tissue culturable. Yeah. Uh, so they have to be, become seed-raised um, sort of, uh, well, they're not exactly clones, but seed-raised uh, groups that stay fairly stable to, to colour, yeah. or you've got to grow them by divisions, and as we know, it takes time to build up yeah, decent divisions right. of clivias. So is there anything happening with you, Jeremy? Have you got any events on at the moment? Anything going on over at Cloud Hill? Well, no particular events, I suppose, although um, <laughs> there was an announcement um, a couple of weeks ago that um, our relationship with diggers is... Um, has evolved. Yes, now I saw that announcement. I was going to ask you about that, but I wasn't going to ask you on air in case it was something I shouldn't <laughs> ask you about. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, it's not something we're discussing over, well, all the way through, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, well, uh, I, I, in, in, in practical terms, nothing changes. Yeah. But basically, the relationship between uh, Cloud Hill and Diggers has turned from a short to medium term relationship to one. A, which is long term, Um, so that um, up until now, Diggers has simply been leasing the nursery site, running the nursery, Mm -hmm. but the um, Cloud Hill Gardens will become part of the Diggers' um, catalogue of gardens, Mm. I suppose, and um, uh, that's kind of interesting. Um, Clive Blasey has uh, quite ambitious um, plans for the Diggers' foundation, and hopes to uh, that the Diggers Foundation will evolve into something which is, sits somewhere between the English National Trust and the uh, Royal Horticultural yeah. Society, I suppose. So yeah, yeah that, that's quite ambitious. Well, Although I, on, on a on a scale back Australian yeah. uh, <laughs> level, I, I, I guess from your perspective, though, if it's going to be part of that organisation, which is now a trust, uh, then it will give some longevity, I guess, to Cloud Absolutely. Hill. Absolutely. And that's Abs- where yep. it comes from, isn't yep. it? Yep. So, so that's the plan. So in practical, in practical terms, I carry on for as long as health permits. Um, and uh, one thing we uh, intend to do over the next, um, well, five, ten years is to put together a, a, a team of hands-on gardeners who are capable of... Uh, uh, really pushing the level of of, um, uh, of, of gardening in Australia mm-hmm. to those international levels, I suppose. Ooh, so it'll become Cloud Hill Dixter, will it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? I've, I've always thought, uh, you know, I, I did have the chance to see those gardens back in the 80s and, and dare I say, um, Dixter. Uh, my wife Valerie's uh, family uh, had in-laws who were next-door neighbours of Christopher Lloyd. Oh, right. So that was the chance for me to meet uh, Christopher Lloyd back in 1988. Yeah. So, um, um, so we've been popping in on Great Dixter for quite a while. Um, the thing about those gardens is generally they're evolved over two or three generations yeah. and really longer. Yeah. And that's something we don't have never seen in Australia. We haven't been here long enough. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But the succession so. is always an issue here, isn't it? It is. I, th- I mean, you know, I've been watching it on Mount Macedon over the decades where, you know, gardens, they have an owner that comes in and does good things and 
takes the garden to the next level oh. and when they decide to sell up and move on or they pass away or whatever, someone new comes in, often with no idea what they're doing and you see all sorts of awful things go on. Um, uh, I have to say at the moment though, Mount Macedon's having a bit of a resurgence. We've got several of the big gardens up there that are doing some really interesting stuff and really trying to take their gardens to the next level, which yeah. is really nice to see. I've become involved with the Alton Garden up at Mount Macedon as sort of, I'm not quite sure what my title is, it might be something <laughs> like... Um, ongoing projects manager or something like that. I'm not quite sure. So um, it's become my place to now sort of work out where and what we should be planting into the future to add biodiversity to the garden because it's a huge collection, basically. It's not necessarily... Well, it's a grand landscape, but not a great landscape, potentially. Uh, It's just grown up and down the hill, as might happen. But it's a great collection of trees and plants of all sorts of things from all over the world. And um, so we're going to start adding more diversity yet again to that garden and making it even more interesting and complex, which I think will be great fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, quite a number of the gardens up there are doing that, which is really fabulous. Yeah. No, uh, so look, at the, I think there is such potential here. And, 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 and this goes back to a conversation I had with... Um, um, someone called uh, 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 Troy Smith mm-hmm. uh, back um, about 15 years ago. Um, he was walking around Cloud Hill over three or four days um, taking photographs, and I eventually got into conversation with him. And um, he mentioned that he'd been one of the gardeners at um, Sissinghurst. Yeah, yes. Um, in fact, mentioned that he'd been there back in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, I... I I, I replied, oh, then you'll be in Tony Lord's book on Sissinghurst, pushing something heavy in the, in, on one of the back pages, won't you? <laughs> and he gave me a very strange look and went home that night and checked Tony Lord and sure enough, there he was pushing a lawnmower. <laughs> so I fell into that bear trap. Yeah. And um, Anyway, he came back the next day and we actually took him out to a meal and, and went into the intricacies of what was involved in looking after a, a, an extraordinary garden like Sessinghurst. Mm. Um, and um, he eventually said that his aim in life was to go back as head gardener. Oh, really? Uh, oh. Which, which, which Valerie and I were, uh, we kind of looked at each other because the tradition of Sessinghurst is the head gardener was always female, so that, that was tricky. <laughs> yes, yeah, that does make it tricky. All right. Uh, but would you believe it, he did go back. Uh, he did end up as head gardener at Sessinghurst. Oh, fantastic. But the, one of the things he was saying is that walking around Cloud Hill, looking at some of the plants, looking at some of our old... Um, uh, the, the big weeping maples, um, things like the anchianthus, mm. and, and saying that yeah, these plants are extraordinary. You've got the best gardening conditions in the world here. The, the, the plants growing in Cloud Hill are actually better than any plants in any National Trust garden in England. You've got the best gardening conditions in the world. You should have the world's best gardens. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should, but then, of course, we haven't got the hundreds of years of history. Exactly. Um, and our climate isn't always kind to us. I well, mean, well, up where Cloud Hill is, maybe. But um, you know. Well, Troy, Troy was talking about 
gardening in Kent, and he was saying what you don't have is is um, spring frost. Right at the end of, just as you're going into summer, you, along comes a frost which wipes out half the plants in the garden, and you've got to rip the entire garden <laughs> at, at, apart and replant it. Yeah. You know, at the beginning of summer. Yeah, but um, that's what they'll do there. We wouldn't do that here. We just wait for things to come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, another yeah. little problem they have at Sissinghurst apparently is that the garden is infested with honey fungus from one end to the other. Yeah. And so, and as soon as he said that, it, it reminded me that you never see old shrubs. So the shrubs are already, already always being replaced mm. because of this very nasty fungus. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the downsides of gardening mm. in the one place for an awfully long time. You can end up with an awful lot of fungus and, yeah, and exactly. other nasty bugs. All right, well, I've got a couple of um, couple of messages to take across. There's been a few people sending us in uh, emails with re- regards to questions and what have you, so I went through them and had a look. We've got four different ones that came in, a couple with uh, images involved, so I'd better run through those. Uh, now, Linda, if you're listening in, I hope you are, because you sent us a picture of a, a green leafy thing. Um, I'm 90% confident that it's actually a persimmon. Um, it's apparently a seedling that's come up in the garden or was given to her or something. It's only a young plant, but by the look of the foliage, I'd say persimmon is my guess. Um, and, of course, a seedling persimmon, goodness knows what you'll end up with if you keep growing it on. It may or may not end up being a worthwhile persimmon, but... I'm 90% sure that's what it is. They, 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 that would, yeah, they self-seed yeah. a little bit. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, I'm confident yeah. that's what it is, or reasonably so. I, mm. I wouldn't stand up in a court of law, but I reckon 90% sure. But you know what? I'd go and buy a grafted one. Well, yeah, a lot of people <laughs> hang on to these things just because they've grown it, but you know, at but the end of the day... You wait for an awful long time for it to fruit, and then if, it, it, if it's you know, one that's not good... Uh. Yeah, yeah, just hopeless. All right, now we've got Debbie from the Latrobe Valley. Now, Debbie sent in a rather odd request. She wanted to know what she could underplant her rabinia with to stop it from suckering. And I'm sorry to say, as far as I'm concerned, there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop it suckering if it starts doing it. And actually digging holes to plant something under it is likely to actually inspire it to do it more. The best thing is the lawn. Yes, exactly. Then Mm. the lawnmower takes care of suckers. I have to say, I have a... I don't have a, a hate-love relationship with Rabinia. I just don't like them. But, but you know what, Stephen? There's a whole copse of them at Long Acres, which yeah. Arthur Streeton planted a yeah. hundred years ago, and I've been with you in the past. Yeah. But these are amazing. Yeah, yeah but none the, of us the, are going to be around for a hundred years. No, but <laughs> but the, it, it shows that you can't really condemn. Oh, probably not. Because the, the, they are really are superb. The yeah. bark is incredible. Yeah. Yeah, the issue with persimmon, uh, persimmon, I mean, the issue with rabinias for me um, is that most of the ones that are out there are the golden rabinia. That mm-hmm. seems to be the commonly one, common one grown, um, which is quite pretty as a young tree. I found it terribly brittle uh, as it got going, yeah. and so it kept losing limbs. And mine got killed by the possums in the end, um, which was another issue. Uh, And I have to say, as much as I liked looking up through it when the sun was shining on it, when it had its leaves on it and all that sort of thing, I didn't actually miss it all that much when yeah. it was gone. Um, and fortunately, the possums actually did kill the tree. It didn't sucker from the roots. It actually yeah. died completely. <laughs> so I didn't have the suckering issue. But I'm sorry, Deb, I can't see how you can stop it suckering by planting something under but the, 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 it. They, they sucker all over the place at Long Acres, yeah. but the suckers never really come to much. Mm. Yeah. I, we, uh, years and years back, when we were farming, we had a rabinia growing in one of the paddocks. Mm. <laughs> and, and you're right, the leaves must be delicious because that didn't 
saccharae that yeah. sheep just um, ate all the suckers yeah, off. So right. that's another way of growing it in, in a paddock sure with, a, with some sheep pasture yeah. around. Right. But, but, but I, it, yes. She's not going to bring a sheep into the garden, <laughs> I shouldn't think. So I don't think we'll go there. Now, there's an interesting question that came in from Kerry. She had a climbing fuchsia in her garden that she'd bought from some church stall, fate, whatever. Um, apparently she's done a bit of her own research and she thinks it might be a fuchsia called Lady Boothby. Uh, now, I've never heard of it. Um, and I have seen climbing fuchsias around. There are a couple of species that climb. I haven't seen any cultivars that climb, but I've seen species. Sort of semi-climbers, are they? Yeah, they're, they're sort of standard shrubs, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, there used to be one growing in one of the gardens up at Mount Macedon that had gone up onto the veranda posts and it was trained along the, um, along the fascia boards and things of this house. Um, I, uh, but what Kerry wants to know is where she could get one and I don't know anybody that's growing any of the climbing fuchsias uh, I think they're one of those things that might well be being passed from hand to hand through home gardeners more than anything else uh, so what I'm suggesting we do is throw it out to listeners and if anybody knows of anybody who's got the climbing fuchsias and as I said they're not really serious climbers they're, mm. they're sort of shrubs that you sort of tie up in place Magellanica uh, yeah, is, is, is quite readily va- available, and that will, now I wouldn't yeah. say climbs, but it, if, if, if there's something supporting it, will grow through things oh, yeah, and get up to an incredible I, height. The, the variety Molinae, the soft mm. pink one, yeah. is even more so. Yeah. 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 But I'm convinced that, uh, in fact, this isn't what she's looking for. I think it's one of those species fuchsias with the quite long tubular flowers and it has quite big leaves. I've seen it. I'm quite convinced mm. I know the plant. Yeah. I don't know that it's called Lady Boothby, but anyhow, if any listeners have got climbing fuchsias out there and they're prepared to share some cuttings with Kerry, uh, I didn't unfortunately write down where Kerry's from, but anyhow, it would be interesting to know if anybody can ring us and let us know if they know somebody who's actually growing it for sale would be even better. Um, so that's the third one. And the last one, Carol, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, but the plant you send us a picture of is Petosperum undulatum, which is considered weedy uh, everywhere except for its native habitat down in East Gippsland. Yeah. Uh, uh, I quite like it as a tree, to be honest. I, I have a soft spot for Petosperum undulatum, but the birds spread the seeds. It comes up all over the place, and you'll see it come up in gardens all over suburban Melbourne. Um, it's not something I'd encourage you to keep, basically. Um, I don't dislike it personally, and as far as I know, the, they sort of say it's weedy outside its natural habitat, but whether it's been declared at all, I don't know. Um, but that's what it is. It's Petosporum undulatum, or the sticky Petosporum. So it has very nicely scented flowers. Um, the sticky seeds will stick to your shoes and you'll walk them in the house, uh, so it can be a bit of an issue there. Um, and it's a solidly evergreen, very dense-headed um, native tree from southern Gippsland and up into New South Wales and probably further north. So it's, it's, it sits right in the middle of this group of plants that uh, what's uh, exotic and what's a native, what's indigenous, yeah. I mean, that really causes philosophical problems, I feel. I mean, right. Gippsland is not far away. Yeah, well, it's but, not. But, but the, this, this, this tree's uh, weed and the dandelions, yeah. well and truly. Mm-hmm. And, but one, and, one and has yet, to wonder. And yet... I mean, it's so close. I mean, the natural mm. habitat is so close, and with climate change, yeah. I mean, it'd be, it'd I'd even take it, its natural habitat. I would take it even further than that. 
we tend to try and put things back to what they were like in 1770, uh, which seems a nonsense to me. Yeah, it is. Um, I would be almost convinced before the Aboriginals started their usual burning techniques and things, I would be almost convinced that Potosmara gelatum had a much broader uh, habitat, na- native habitat, uh, than what it did when we arrived. And it's been burnt. Yeah, and it's been burnt because it does die after burning, unlike yeah. a lot of our eucalypts and things, yeah. and it's not so prone to self-seed after fire like our acacias are. Um, so I, I have this sense, and I, I could be wrong, I'm not a scientist, I haven't done the paleobotany or whatever, mm. but I have a sense it's one of those vigorous trees that probably had a much wider range way back. So are we reintroducing a native? <laughs> I <suspect laughs> we are. If, if that were the case, it would be present in our forests. Mm. Well, possibly, but um, it's just one of those plants that, um, you know, it's obviously going to take over areas <laughs> that it, it wasn't in when we first came because it's all down the coastal areas. You oh. go down to Lawn and all mm. through there's, there's sweet potosphorum everywhere and there's signs up saying, don't grow it, don't grow it, don't grow it, yet it's everywhere and it's in every second garden along yeah, I mean, oh, this, this is really, there's lots of room for argument here. Yeah. Right? I mean, it should be present in our forests, but were our forests been burnt? Yeah, well, I mean, exactly. around the Dandenongs, so most probably they were because we have kangaroo grass growing right up to the edge of the yeah. mountain ash and it shouldn't be there. Yeah. And yet it is. Well, according to Bill Gamage, that once every 300 years the mountain ash forests were burnt. All right, when are we due for another one? Yeah. <laughs> You've got to wonder. Yeah. All right, we better open up the lines and encourage our listeners to ring in. Now, if you want to ring in, it's 94190155. And if you want to send us a text, that's what we seem to be doing these days, it's 04888098555. So ring in on 94190155 or text on 04888. Zero nine eight double five. So there we go. Now, whilst we're waiting for a few people to ring in, I know Jeremy's bought some plants, Craig has bought some plants, so we might have a quick talk about a few of the different plants you guys have brought in uh, to encourage people to think gardening and maybe ring us up. So, uh, Jeremy, why don't we start with one or two of your plants? You, I think I can see some salvias from here. Yeah. Um, I was in a, a couple of months back and talking about a new part of the garden we planted, um, we, well, we pulled apart an old section uh, just below the restaurant and, and running down to our two big weeping maples and um, planted that with ornamental grasses and, the, the, and uh, so it's, it's meant to be about 80-90% ornamental grasses alleviated a little with agastaches and salvias and um, I suddenly couldn't remember the, um, the group of salvies we're using, um, but it's the Greggy Eyes, the, uh, uh, the Mirage group. Yeah, uh, so they're the sort of Mexican... Yeah, they so small-leafed, um, uh, continuously flowering salvias. Um, now, there's been a lot of work with breeding salvias, but some of the more recent work is really starting to pay dividends and... Oh, there's two or three of these which are just absolutely outstanding, and one of them is the cream which I've brought in. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, it's, it's uh, well, cream is most probably about right, but there's there's a whole series of colours running through the flowers, and the calyxes uh, accentuate the effect, mm. and these things are flowering. So it's just called cream, is it? Yeah, just oh. a mirage queen God, cream. I... So <laughs> nothing very exciting with these. There's, yeah. a, there's a, a, I think there's about seven or eight in the group. And so it's called range. mirage, and then it's got the yeah, then name there's is a the soft colour. pink, and then there's mm. a, a, a richer pink, a, a red cream and running through to purple, so they've got the gamut yeah. <laughs> of these griggy eyes. But the, the new breeding is really paying off in terms of the effect of the plant over the summer. These things are flowering for months. Yeah. Um, need a little bit of maintenance, of course, but for our purposes, we're trying to find colours that uh, sort of sit within the, um, the, the range of colours um, uh, that are produced by the flowering grasses, and these work so, extremely well. I was going to say that colour would work really well, that sort of creamy colour, yeah. uh, with the sort of yeah, with, thorns with and buffs exactly, and beiges exactly. of the grasses. Um, so, so I'm quite pleased with how this is working out at the moment, although it's only, it, we're still planting, we're still messing around with it, it'll be another, be another year or two before it's um, mature. Um, the uh, the other one I brought in is one of the Agastaches. This is um, uh, one of the antique perennial uh, nurseries introductions, oh, right. uh, Agastache Nadine. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, that's, um, uh, well, a good mid-pink. Mm. But again, some of the Agastaches, some of the new breeding, and especially some of the work being done by um, antique perennials and, and, and uh, well, uh, David Glenn at Lambley, yeah. uh, the, the two or three people working with them. Mm. Um, uh, the Agastaches are fabulous things too. Aromatic mm. foliage, soft, long flowering, <laughs> very long flowering, uh, extremely drought tolerant, mm. and um, uh, and again, it's a, a, a spectrum of colours that works really well with ornamental grasses. Yeah, well, it's fantastic. So. That's the other thing I like about a garden like yours. There's always new things happening. It's not being kept in a static sort of way. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if people come up and have a look at the at Cloud Hill now, there'll be things that you've been working on that they won't have seen before if they were up there a year or two back. Um, so we were sitting and watching a, a, a row of magnolias gradually die on us. Mm-hmm. And this, this is interesting too because we uh, had to put a power line in so we... Uh, rip beside these magnolias oh 25 years ago oh, and right. put a power line in and um, and the magnolias uh, that hiccup a little bit and bounce back um, 12 years later we, we had to increase the size of the power line so we had to rip again oh, no. no I was thinking <laughs> now this is going to be straightforward these, these trees expect uh, to be have yeah, their, root root. their roots <laughs> um, Taken back uh, once every uh, once every little while, they didn't like it whatsoever. It's the second ripping which caused the problem, oh. and um, they gradually went backwards and, and and began to die on us year by year um, over the last what five six years, hmm. and so we had to remove several of these trees uh, last spring, oh. and uh, that uh, of course meant much more sunlight into this area. Uh, there were one or two other things happening which I wasn't happy with, so that was an excuse to start again. And a gap so, is an yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, no chance to to uh, rethink that section of the garden. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. So, all right. So, 
Salvias and Agastakis we're talking about this morning. So I'm sure Jeremy will be able to answer any questions if you've got any on that particular group of plants as well as practically anything else. So don't forget we've got quite a body of knowledge in the studio here this morning. So if you've got any questions and would like to ask us... uh, about anything about your garden, really, um, don't forget the phone number is 94190155 and the text number is 04888 um, We might give Craig a wee bit of a crack at something he's got along with him this morning. So yeah, what just, would you... just back onto the grasses, you know, on my nature strip there's a great row of Miscanthus Kleinfontaine, which is my favourite mm. of those Sinensis hybrids. And in amongst it, Gladioli delenii turned up. You know, the autumn flowering red one and the combination... You're saying that you didn't actually plant it, it just turned up. I planted up. it in, in the border, but not in that position. Ah, so yeah, it's, it's, it's itself seeded around. itself in there somehow. But the combination of the, the fawn colours of the grasses and the red gladioli is very good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, David Glenn's got some really nice old Delenii hybrids that he picked up around yeah. the Ballarat area, apparently. He's got a couple of those, and they were in flower when I was up there the other day. And they were very dramatic. Yeah. And, and it's funny because they're comparatively stiff, so they've got the sort of almost look of the modern hybrid gladiolos. They're not as dainty That's as, right. uh, as the, some of the other species. But somehow or another, they don't look that coarse. Yeah, uh, and, and the, the, the lovely um, glaucous foliage. Mm. Yeah. So that that makes a huge difference. Yeah, and, and a big range of colours. Yeah. yeah, yeah, fabulous plants. Yeah, I'm I'm quite quite fond of it. All right. Well, what else have you got in your little Berberus Wagneri Moseri? Oh yes. Well, there's a genus that's have, having a little bit of an issue at the moment. Is it? Oh, they're all Berberus now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know that. I'm, yeah. I'm getting. I'm gradually getting used to it. And as far it. as I know, that one is now considered to be Aquifolium Moseri. So this, the Wagneri has been dropped. Yes, apparently it's, it's right. considered not to be a hybrid after all. Yeah. So therefore, they got rid of the Wagneri, and it's now just a selection, apparently, of Aquifolium. Okay. But Nonetheless, a fabulous plant. It's a really good plant. It's just starting to show a bit of red mm. and just starting to set flower buds. But generally in the winter, you have the combination of the two. Yeah. It um, likes a bit more sunshine than... You most. need a bit of sun to get the yeah. red. Yeah. yeah. I but love its new growth in the spring, though. That's right. Because yeah. it's almost an apricot orange. It's yeah. just outrageous yeah. coloured foliage. Um, and it's slow growing, which is, mm. you know, a, to me, a big advantage. Suckers a little bit. But not viciously. Not viciously, no. absolutely not, no. Yeah, for me, it's the opportunity to have another plant. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting you say slow growing a big advantage. That's exactly what I feel about every plant. That's yeah. right. I, I, yeah. you know, it's the slow growing ones which are the really exciting ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Patience, patience in gardening. is. The, Everybody wants is things to happen immediately. Yeah. 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 It sounds to me like you fellows should join my club I'm calling the Slow Gardening Club. Slow Gardening, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Because yeah. it's, it, it just strikes me as really odd that people want such immediate impact um, and they're not prepared to sit back and watch and enjoy because gardening's a process not a product. That's right and, 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 and you plant these fast growing plants and they continue to grow fast mm. for their entire existence yeah. so you're, you're a slave to them. Yeah, yeah. It's like planting a box honeysuckle hedge. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't keep those trimmed about a, once a fortnight um, you'll never get on top of it um, yeah. and you know why would you do that? I mean, you just, you quite literally are making yourself a slave. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, that Mah- uh, Mahonia, Berberus, whatever we're going to yeah. call them now, um, we haven't mentioned the fact 
that it also gets very pleasant flowers. That's, yeah, in the winter, yellow. Mm, yeah, yep. yeah, very yep. cheery. That's right. Uh, uh, so I find all that Mahoney, a group of the Berberus genus, I tend to say nowadays, yeah. just to sort of differentiate them because horticulturally, the Mahoney is a fairly different to most of the Berberus, aren't they? That's so, an understatement. Yeah, so <laughs> I can see where they're going because the flower shapes and everything. If, yeah. you, if you pick a Mahoney flower and a Berberus flower, uh, most people couldn't tell the difference between an individual yeah. flower of both groups. And the yellow sap. Yeah, and the yellow sap and the yellow yeah. roots and, yeah. you know, all the other stuff is there. Yeah. Uh, but visually, in, in, in a horticultural setting, they're quite a different sort of look. Yeah, I have nearly every Mahonia that I can find in my garden and... Mm. Yeah, I really like them. Yeah. And the shade, you know, they're striking. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're a really wonderful group. Yeah. Uh, I've got what was Lamerifolia, now Awakanensis in flower in the garden at home. I didn't know that. Oh, didn't you? No. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. yeah, so it's, it's now Berberus Awakanensis. Right. Uh, if we're going to take it right to that extreme. But it's a big, bold, upright. Very narrow. Very narrow shrub with yeah. these huge leaves that come out in sort of like Elizabethan ruffs at That's the top. Right. And wonderful... Um, fissured bark yeah. uh, and it's got these upright spikes of golden yellow flowers at the moment the honey eaters are having a ball with yeah. and it's just such a dramatic plant yeah I have one at home that's a cross between it came from Woodbank Nursery in Tasmania and I think it's a cross between that one and Fortune Eye yeah. very interesting, it's almost like a palm tree, Yeah. tall narrow trunks, fantastic Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there, there's a lot of plants in that group that we should be looking for um, I'm starting to propagate but I I won't have it for sale for ages, I don't think. I propagated a small batch of it a few years ago, and I haven't touched my stock plant since because it's so slow growing. But the summer flowering pink one, okay. uh, which was Mahonia gracilipes and is now Berberus gracilipes, and it has soft pink flowers in the summer. It has spineless leaves, white reverse, oh. and I imported the plant... 15 or 20 years ago from, uh, I think I got it from Dan Hinckley in America. Right. Uh, and it's grown steadily. I might, right. might add it had a couple of checks to its, uh, its progress. Uh, I'd not long planted it in the garden at home. And a rather doddery lady fell on it, <laughs> which didn't help matters. No. Uh, of all the things she could have fallen on in the garden, that was the, the, the one that I would have hated the thought that she had. But anyhow, she did, and it, and it loosened its roots, and it took me ages to re-establish it again. Um, but it's a stunning Mahonia. Nice foliage? Lovely foliage. Okay. Um, it's slightly grey-green on the top, and it's virtually white underneath, yeah. uh, but it's non-prickly. Uh, which does have that advantage because, as we all know, with Mahonias and the same with hollies, when their leaves die and drop to the ground, they're even pricklier. Yeah, it's a gloves job. Yeah, it definitely is to weed in underneath the damn things. Or you send the undergardener in. Are there any other pinks? Yeah, there are a number of pink species, apparently, but Gracilipes is the only one I managed to get my hands on. Um, And it is... It's not as showy as the yellow ones, I have to say, in flower. And because mm. it's summer flowering, you tend not to find it as exciting in bloom in some ways yeah. because there's lots of things competing with it in the summer, whereas most of the other Mahonias are winter flowering, so they've got it to themselves to a large extent. But Gracilipes is a lovely thing, yeah. uh, but it is incredibly slow-growing. Right. Uh, so my stock plant must be 
15 years old and it's, it's probably a little more than a metre and a half tall. Sounds perfect. And uh, I have taken, cutting, <laughs> I've taken cuttings of it twice now. Yeah. The original batch, I got half a dozen cuttings to strike and they've sold and gone. Yeah. Uh, and I've now got probably five or six cuttings struck again. Uh, but they're only just struck, so they won't be available for sale for at least 12 months. And even then they'll be small. Um, but uh, it's rather fun having something that's sort of not the normal mould of a genus. I yes. Think. I, I love all that. Yeah, I put reapins in the garden last year yeah. and suckers start popping up like a metre from the main plant oh, yeah, yeah, very yeah. quickly. Yeah, reapins can do that and nervosa is also another one that sort of, in my garden, certainly runs yeah. around. Yeah. Uh, but I quite like that. If you've planted things in the right place, That's right. I don't mind things that sort of soften off a bed by moving into the space around them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you don't want to sell something, you tell people it has nasty prickles and suckers. Yes. <laughs> because they're the two things that people won't plant, and yet they'll put in rugosa roses. That's right. Yeah. We, we have bamboos right at the beginning of the garden, and I walk in with garden groups and give them a lecture on bamboos and the joys of bamboos and how really the best ones are the running bamboos. Well, no, they are visually. They're, yeah, they're by oh, by a long way. No, yeah. The, the you know, clumpets are just underground bulldozers. Yeah. So the runners are actually quite genteel. you just got to... Just got to keep ahead of them, haven't you? Well, exactly. In fact, we were in Simon Rickart's garden with this tour I took the other day, and Simon's got both the gold-stemmed form and the green-stemmed form of Philostachys uh, vivax uh, in his garden there, and he's actually planted them on, on mounds with a slight moat around yeah. the outside, and he says for 10 minutes once a year he just goes in there and deals with any suckers that are coming up in the moat, yeah. um, and they stay in a comparatively restrained clump. Um, and he said, you know, I spend a far more, a lot more time mowing the grass, yeah. uh, which is exactly true, and yet people seem to be prepared to spend the time mowing the grass, but they start to get panicky about the bamboo. So I don't know. All right, well, we better mention the phone numbers again. Where are you all, everybody? Um, we would love to hear from you here. Uh, we haven't had anybody call in yet. And it's 94190155. That's 94190155. Or if you're a little shy, you can text us a question on 04888098555. All right, well, Craig, we might talk about another plant of yours. Um, um. Here is begonia echinocephala. Oh, you and your begonias. <laughs> yeah, look, it, it's it, if you if you imagine the begonia, this would not be what came into your head. Um, uh, yes, it doesn't look terribly begonia-esque. No, and and I think it's a very good garden plant. Um, beautiful flowering. The flowering is just starting now, and eventually they're held way above the foliage. Mm-hmm. They sort, it's sort of almost reminiscent of a little camellia yeah. with the little white flowers, dark green, narrow leaves, a shrubby one from the lowland country in, in South America. And how hardy do you find it? Does it come through your winters all right? Absolutely. No problem at all. Yeah. Yeah. One of these days I'm going to have to get some of these from you and trial them out at Macedon because I can, I can, I'm still nervous about them, I have to say, because uh, begonias for me always scream frost tenderness. Well, most uh, of them are, of yeah, course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there's got to be some out there, considering how huge the genus is. That's right. Uh, that um, uh, I should be able to grow yeah. uh, in a sheltered spot in the garden. Yeah. What about 
water requirements for some oh, of these. Look, I find them to be really tough. So they're not particularly drought tolerant or anything like that? Yeah, or I think t- they drought are drought tolerant. Sorry, I meant no. to say it the other way around. I mean, I find with the pots that if, if I see a begonia that's looking a bit crook and I tip it out of the pot, it's wet. Yeah. And if I see one that's jumping out of its socks, it's as dry as a bone. Yeah, isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So the, I guess when one um, looks at what one's normal concept of begonias are, I guess most people know about uh, the tuberous begonias, which can be a little bit sort of touchy about their requirements yeah. and watering and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Or they potentially think about the little sempervirum ones, the little border the begonias annual ones, yeah. Yeah, that, that you just put in as annuals, yeah. uh, or maybe the cane begonias that somebody has in a big pot sitting under their veranda. Yeah. Um, it's just well, it's just the beginning. It's just the tip I, of the iceberg. I'm trying desperately to think just what I would compare it with, and it looks, well, more like a viburnum, perhaps. Yeah, viburnum henry eyes got a yeah, little yeah, that sort of shape, yeah. although it's got a slightly grey sheen to the foliage, which I find really interesting. So it's quite a, a unique look. So what was the species name of this Echinocephala. one? Echinocephala. With an S, cephala. Cepha- oh. yeah. All right, well, that, that'll sell it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, the species are interesting, and the, and the woman that I buy them from lives on top of the hill above the Anglis Hospital in Ferntree Gully, which I would have thought was dry. Yeah. Yeah, garden full of them. Really? Many, many different species. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great plant, so if I can take that home, I you might see if I can, can strike it from a cutting. I don't think uh, you'll have, have... They're not a big challenge. No, them. no. <laughs> yeah, well, I won't tell you if I don't succeed because that would be really bad for me. Yeah. Uh, but um, it does look like a lovely plant, and yeah. uh, it's probably a genus I should be engaging with. Well, yeah, I mean, it has the advantage of drawing in the indoor plant people, which is, you know, every second customer these yeah. days. Yeah, well, it is. Uh, and yeah. I take it that a lot of these would, in fact, perform reasonably well Absolutely. with the indoor plants. Yeah, as well. they're good. So yeah. this is your little ploy to make sure you still make a sale. Well, I, no's <laughs> not a good word. <laughs> <laughs> this is an extraordinary number of gardeners in the Dandongs uh, that have seized on some obscure little group of plants and have gone for it. And, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, begonias um, grown for their foliage and uh, I once walked into a garden in the patch and it was full of uh, tropical salvias uh, shade loving salvias uh, yeah. Yeah, 40 or 50 different uh, yeah. species just just extraordinary oh, I love those sort of plants mm. people that get onto yeah. something really interesting and do it which other people don't have that's right <laughs> alright we've got our first call in so we might actually have a crack at uh, having a chat to to Ricky good morning are you there Ricky Ricky? Oh. All right, I've done something wrong. What's going on here? I'll try again. Ricky, are you there? Yes, I am. Ah, good, I got you. How are you this morning? I'm very well. Good. I Uh, uh, would like to ask the panel about my blackberry pine. Yeah. They have got fairly big white patches in the leaves. Then uh, I took all the old pines. I cut them out, and the new ones get it again. So I would like to know what's wrong with them or what I have to do. All right, gentlemen, do we know anything about the um, productive blackberries? I've not grown them personally, uh, and I've not heard of this issue. White White patches. patches. Is it it sort of furry white? or? No, it's not... um, uh, but you get on the zucchinis and the, the, the cabbage. Yeah, the, so it's uh, not a mildewy sort of thing. No, it's inside the, the leaf itself, not on top. 
No, I've never seen it. It sounds like some beastie, I suspect. Yeah, I wonder whether it's some sort of miner or something, some sort of leaf miner or something. Um, To be honest with you, I don't think any of us actually know this problem, Ricky, I'm sorry to say, but if it were me, I wouldn't worry too much about it. If your vines are still productive, I mean... Anything you can eat from, I I would hesitate to ever spray any sort of chemical on it because we don't want to start putting chemicals onto something that's going to be a food plant. So I wouldn't even suggest using any sort of insecticides or miticides or or any of those sort of things. And you certainly shouldn't use them unless you know exactly what you're treating because you need to have the right chemical to do the treating if you're going to do it anyway. Um, So I don't know that we're going to be much help. Are, Are they still producing? Are you still getting blackberries? Yes, I did. Not as many as what I did last year, but... Well, that could be seasonal. Yeah. I'll look... No, it had... It did happen last year as well. So... So that's why I took all the leaves off, Mm. and I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe I have to spray on it, but... I look in all my gardening books and nothing tells me about those white patches. Um, No, I'm not familiar with it at all. Uh, I would certainly consider taking some specimens down to a a good, reliable local nursery and get them to have a look at it uh, because it's always easier if you can do these things in the flesh, so to speak, as opposed to over the phone. Um, And certainly if you know anybody out there that is a specialist in berries and fruits and things... um, I'm not sure that there's anybody on the Strathmore side of Melbourne, but there's a few fruit tree growers and berry growers and things on the Dandenong side. Certainly is. Uh, and they would uh, be far better at knowing these sorts of things. Um, uh, what's your name, uh, Mr Rayner, who's got the berry place on the other side of town? Uh, yes, Rayner's Orchard. Yeah, Rayner's Orchard, yeah, yes, because he was up at the Rare Plant Fair at um, yeah. Wandon the other week. And... Uh, what he doesn't know about fruit and berries and things, I don't think is worth knowing. But yeah, um, that, that's open to the public, um, and um, yes, yeah, worthwhile. Um, yes, if you want to go for a day trip, yeah, yeah, look up Rainer's Orchard. I think it's R A Y N E R S. Slow down. Is it rain? Rainer's R A Y N E R S. Rainer's Orchard. And if you gave, uh, is it Len, I think his name is, Len? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, uh, I'm woeful with people's names. I'm far better with plant names. Uh, but if you gave him a ring, uh, he might suggest you send him a specimen. That is another way of dealing with this, I guess. Um, but I would always go to an expert about a specific issue if I've got a problem I can't solve. So I would have thought Mr Rayner would be ideal to have a look at that for you. I, uh, yes, I can send him a photos if I... Uh yeah, the, uh, yeah. Well, I know, I know he's not terribly technologically minded, but he may well have somebody that works staff with his, a staff member that actually can deal with all of that side of things. So, yeah, it could be worthwhile sending him some photos. So I'd get in touch with him if I were you, Ricky. It, it says R-I-Y. No, R-A-Y. Ray. Yes. N-E-R-S. Rainer's okay. Orchards. Okay, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. All right, we'll catch up with you again sometime. All right, bye. Thanks very much. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. All right. Oops, I think I did something slightly wrong then. I forgot to put hold, and then there we go. And now we've got Michael from Caulfield. Are you there, Michael? I am indeed, yes, Ah. yes. 
Oh, I'm getting better at this. <laughs> now, you have a question about Clivia Clivia. <laughs> uh, yes, what never, what is your question? Never knows her. Mm. Okay, well, the problem is that um, something is eating it. And I looked up the, the books, and it says snails are the big problem, and I put snail bait out. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem to have any impact. How long ago did you bait them? Oh, I've been doing this for a long It's a long time. It's probably been going on for you know, weeks, and, and yeah, I bait well, them every now and then but yeah the issue with clivias uh is in fact that once the damage is done it's down down inside the plant and the leaves will still keep coming up with the damage on them even if you've dealt with the snails so it can take half a season or longer before you start seeing leaves coming up that aren't damaged but but some of the leaves that are already out there they, they seem to be becoming more damaged mm-hmm. i mean you're sort of eaten along the side that doesn't sound like snails. No, it doesn't. It sounds like that um, little bug that eats chameleons, you know, that... Yeah, the elephant. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the elephant weevil, yeah. Um, elephant weevil? Uh, <laughs> well, it has a long snout. Yes. <laughs> it's not uh, as not big as an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Worry for a moment. <laughs> um, yeah, so... The, uh, it, it, do you have any camellias? Are they, do, are, do you have uh, camellias uh, with notched, uh, notches in their leaves? Oh, we have camellias, but they're on the other side of the garden. I right, any yeah, and, 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 and these things don't travel very far. They, they just travel a metre or two. Um, yeah, I'm so not too sure apart from that. They're quite tricky to deal with. Right. Um, um, we, uh, we, we, oh dare I say, we could ha- have a commercial contractor who comes in with a nematode and, um, uh, and, uh, and sprays, uh, a nematode, which is a, a very safe biological approach. Uh, but it's quite technically difficult, um, and it's almost impossible for the home gardener to, to um, do this. You, you do need to speak to a, um, a, a, a professional in the field. Um, How ugly are they? I mean, is oh, it, re- it, it, yeah, it? I mean, some of them are, I could cut off the leaves, I suppose, or some, some of the bad ones. Mm. <coughs> but yeah. pest oil or any of the other things aren't going to have an effect. I'd be surprised if pest oil was strong enough to do anything yeah. to them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it can't do any great harm, so it could be worthwhile trying. Um, and I guess, you know, there are slightly more potent things out there that um, are systemic, which might do the thing, though I hate to use them. Yeah. Um, I mean, if the plants are performing reasonably well uh, and flowering reasonably well, um, it may be one of those things you have to live to with, I should say. Of course, you could come up to Craig's place later in the year when the big Clivia sale's going on and have a talk to one of the experts who's going Peter to... Peter will know. Peter will know. Yeah. Um, so when do you... Second weekend in October. Second weekend in October. If you can hang on for that length of time, Michael, it might be worth a day trip out to the Dandenongs to, uh, to Gentiana Nursery uh, to have a talk to uh, the, probably the preeminent expert on the genus in this country. Or I at think least, so. Yeah, yeah, at least probably one of them. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's a matter of talking to the experts, and I'm sure that he will have had some uh, contact with this problem himself, yep. uh, and might well be able to help you out with it, Michael. Well, 
sounds fantastic. I, I've never heard of the fair, but it would be good to attend. Well, it's not a fair per se, but it's a clivier sale. The Peter Peter breeds an awful lot of cliviers. He's not a commercial breeder. He's a he's a home breeder, but he sells off the residue, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Michael, keep listening in too, because we've just had a call come in, and I'll go to Carol in a second. She tells us at least on the message on the computer monitor here, that she has a cure for elephant weevils. So keep, keep listening. We might well have something come up for you. Will do. Thank All you right. so much. That's a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Uh, where are we? There we go. Now let's see what Carol has to say. Carol, are you there? Yes, I am. Ah, fantastic. Good morning, Carol. And, and can you help Michael? Yes, go out at night with a torch. So and you, you can pick, they're dumb. You can pick them up and squash them. Ah, okay. easy. Oh. Sometimes, they're, sometimes they're piggybacking one another. Oh, so you can get one, you two can, at you once. To, yeah, you can get two at once. No, I, I find whenever the leaves and bulbs and things are gone, I go out at night with the torch and get them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you might be seen as slightly and, quaint by your neighbours, but you know. <laughs> Oh, no, they all think I'm odd. Yeah. yeah. That's all right. Oh, well, it's something to aspire towards, I would have thought, Carol. Well, yeah, well, it used to be now. Yeah. No, no, going out at night with a torch is amazing what you see. Yeah. And you get a surprise, you know, you go out some nights and there's zillions of slugs and you think, gee, there wouldn't be anything left of the garden if you... But, but they don't eat the garden. They're eating other things or doing other things. Mm-hmm. And I once saw a bull ant, a big... Um, a soldier ant, I think they're called, eating a, a little snail. Yeah. You know, little things like that, you see. It's fascinating. Yeah, well, going that, out at that's night... That's the easiest. All yeah, right. with the torch. And that seems like the most environmentally friendly way to yep. deal with yeah, some of these pests. It's, and it's patience and persistence. Mm. You know, you, you, well, you become addicted to it, actually. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I do a little bit of that myself uh, mm. with, uh, well, snails and slugs, for instance. It's uh, yeah. Walking around at night is the, the best uh, chance of dealing uh, with something uh, and uh, not using chemicals. Uh, and the, uh, certainly the elephant weevils, they're generally in small populations. So it's just that one one. Beast, uh, one of these can do quite a bit of damage, yeah. but it's always cosmetic damage. But all the same, from the point of yeah. view of the gardener, yeah, well, it is right. really, really irritating. I might add that uh, for the commercial flower growers, they, uh, they, they, they have a horror of these things. Mm. <laughs> well, you certainly can't sell a flower if it's got half its petals munched. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, but just one notch in the leaf is enough to really upset a bunch of flowers. Yeah. 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 It's a, it just draws the eye. And I can understand anyone with uh, this problem in the garden thinking, oh, crikey, I'm the, <laughs> I'll sell and move. Yes, <laughs> Um, breeding and something also, uh, you can put little piles of bran or breakfast cereal around and that will attract the slugs and snails and then you go outside and get them. Yeah. I'm renowned for taking out scissors for the slugs because they're very hard to kill otherwise. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah, well, it's awful, but they yeah. roll around. Oh, like Carol, you I'm glad I haven't had breakfast yet. Uh. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I, I find people coming into the nursery rejecting a plant because it has a hole in the leaf or yeah. Yeah, bringing pieces of plant in that are being eaten. And at the end of the day, you know, your garden should be a place where other things can survive well, other, exactly. other than well, plants. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, oh. the, the, uh, the classic Dutch flower growers always painted their vases of flowers with, with, one, with one or two notches, one or two holes in the leaves, and, and a snail hanging off somewhere. It was, it, it's, it's, it's a long pedigree to that approach. Yeah. Exactly, yes. Yeah. If we can be a little more relaxed, it's good. But I have to agree that something with a big, solid, and fairly evergreen leaf like a clivia it sort of sits there and looks at you, uh, making you feel guilty for a long time yeah, before you true. can discard it. Yeah. It's like if the snails and slugs get into your hostas at the beginning of the season. No, no, no. You've got the whole rest <laughs> of the season yeah. to, to, to regret your um, tardiness in That's dealing right. with them yeah. um, because there's nothing worse than a whole pile of hostas that look like lace napkins. Shredded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it's a bit of a worry. All right, Carol, thank you so much for that. And I'm hoping thank Michael... You, Doug. And I... I've got a climbing fuchsia too. Oh, have you? Ah. Yes, I, don't quite... I, got it from, I got it from Coachwood Plants in the Melbourne Flower and Garden Show in 2015. Ah, Coachwood and, Plants. Yeah, Fuchsia, R-E-G-I-A. I'm not sure how you would say that. R-E-G-I-A, Regia. Regia. Yeah. And um, it didn't flower till last year when we had a lot of autumn rain. I can't water the garden because it's full of roots. Mm. And it's climbed up through my plastic house, and where it's gone out um, horizontally, it's had uh, advantageous, you know, the roots were starting to grow. Which yep. makes me think it might be a jungle plant that, you know... Well, most through. of these things come from sort of Bolivia and yeah. those parts of South America. So, yeah. so they, in fact, would be. So what was the name of the nursery again? Hopefully, no, Kerry's no, Lizard. No, well, I can, I can give a cuttings. Yeah, um, but I'm not quite I'm sure where Kerry is. I didn't get a, yeah, an address. Yeah. Um, well, I'm in Croydon. Uh, I can post them to her. All right. Uh, look, would you um, like to give... Kate, it was, yeah, I'll give my number. Are you sure? Or email at the end. Email might be better because I'm better on emails than phones. Mm-hmm. Um, and she can contact me on that. All right. But this, it only has just an ordinary, you know, the, the normal sort of fuchsia flowers and the fuchsia pink and, you know, yeah. colours. It's it not, may not, not be quite the same one she's looking for, no, but nonetheless, it, it, it's it, a climber. Would, yeah, it is a climber, I would say. All right. And it's, it, well, it took off. It's all, all right. over the place. All right. So what, what, what sort of contact would you like to give her if she's prepared? Well, can I give it off air? Uh, can the boy, the boys will take you back off air and they will take your yeah. details and then they can pass it on if we, if we can get back to Kerry. So that, that might be yeah. the way to go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, I'll then. leave cool. you, uh, leave you to the boys off air. I'm not sure whether I can actually cut you off from here. I can. All right. I will catch up with you again. Well, and thank you so much. Boy, yes, <laughs> Thanks, Carol. Okay, All right. Then. <laughs> See you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Oh, dear. All right, so... You're uh, doing an amazing job, Stephen. Oh, I don't Pam know. would be proud. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here, really. But anyhow, oh, we've got a note that's come in. Uh, uh, all right, yes, we can do that. Uh, one, I've, I've been, it's been suggested to me, and this is fairly reasonable, uh, that it's probably not a bad idea to reintroduce our guests today, which you two gentlemen are, in fact for those who were sleeping in and didn't start listening early enough. So today it's me, of course, Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. 
Uh, it's Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill Gardens up in the Dandenongs, up at Linda. And it's um, Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery, also up in that general neck of the woods. So, um, And Craig, a question, your nursery, when's it open as a rule? Closed Tuesdays, open 10 to 5 every other day. So 10 to 5 every day bar Tuesday yep. when it's closed. And what about the hours at Cloud Hill? That's probably a good thing to tell people about. Yeah, they have changed a tiny bit um, uh, since last year. Uh, they're, they're open from 10 to 5 uh, during uh, on weekdays and 9 to 5 on weekends, seven days. There we go. Mm. So that's good. And look, seeing as you've been doing it, I might as well as well. Yeah. So if people are looking to come up to Dixonia Rare Plants at Mount Macedon, um, uh, my nursery's open 10 to 5 as well, but it's closed on Wednesday and Thursday. So that's my weekend. Um, so, uh, yes, we'd all love to see you in our respective um, venues at some point or another. Um, I think between us, we've probably got a pretty good collection of plants out there. I, I would have thought so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so... Um, I don't think any of us are growing anything you'd buy in the big barns. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Yes, yeah, so, so there you go. Uh, yeah, just doing a quick inventory, but probably not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't think of anything I've got that you'd generally find in, uh, in Bunnings, and, uh, so there you go. Um, all right, now we do have a text message that's come through, and I'm hoping that they'll scroll it up a wee bit for me so I can see it. But there's an upcoming event uh, encouraging women in horticulture. Uh, they're hosting a sustainable floristry event on the 31st of May. Um, and I need the scrolling up if we can, guys. Can we get it up a little bit higher, please? You'll learn uh, how to do all sorts of floristry things. I'm not being paid attention to. I need the scroll up of the message, please. Uh, ah, there we go. Fantastic. You'll learn how to make a beautiful bouquet uh, from Rita Feldman to take home and have a lovely afternoon tea with like-minded women. Uh, so if you want to go to this event uh, in, that's being run by Encouraging Women in Horticulture, go to the three W's dot E-W-H in capital letters uh, at, uh, sorry, E-W-H dot com dot au so ewh in capitals dot uh, com dot au and you'll be able to book into that um, uh, floristry event on the 31st of may so that sounds like something worthy of doing so you ladies out there who want to hone your floristry skills this could be the very opportunity to do so so there we go uh, right all right we've got somebody else coming through ah it's um Hold on, we've ah, there we go. I think we have got Jill from the Herb Society. Are you there, Jill? Yes, I am, David. Well done. I'm talking to me, of course. Uh, how are you, Jill? I'm fine. I'm. I've been gardening. Have you? And have we got a sore back? Yes, I, I've chosen between a bad heart and a bad back. <laughs> And I've chosen the bad back. Oh, dear, yes. Well, gardener's back. It's just one of the possible downsides of being a gardener, I suppose. Uh, now, you've got an upcoming event for the Herb Society you'd like to tell us about? Yes, this Thursday, 7.30pm sharp yep. at Burnley Horticultural Garden uh, uh, College at, yep. at uh, Room 10, and that's in the main building. Yep. And one enters by the steel ramp. Yep. Anyway, I'm the speaker. 
And I've prepared 28 PowerPoint slides, or whatever you call them. Um, (laughs) I'm glad to see you using the technical jargon, Jill. That's right, plants (laughs) of the first fleet. Ah. So there's the English plants, the plants from Brazil, and the plants from the Cape of Good Hope, South Africa. So people don't understand that the first fleet called into Tenerife, Rio de Janeiro and Cape Town on the way of the southern seas to Tasmania and then north to what became New South Wales. Yes. Fantastic. So, so so you're going to be the guest speaker. I, if I remember rightly, you do do a nice um, uh, uh, supper as well with the Herb Society. Well, at the moment, we're only having the tea. Oh, yes, with the COVID restrictions. Yeah. I'm very sorry about that. But, uh, oh, uh, well. when, you know, after we've all had the jab, we'll all have done yep. uh, nice suppers again, I think. Good. Anyway... Um, I, we also, at the event, we have usually, uh, well, I always take cuttings, you know, things like uh, Pelagonium maple grey and uh, other things that people really like. Good. And I just have to tell you that I'm taking cuttings of salvia pink icicle, which is in flower for the third time this year. Fantastic. I, I prune it back and, you know, it's pale pink. Big flowers, and the other thing I'll take some cuttings of is salvia in volucrata bethelii, which has huge fat pink buds now and flowers all winter in, in a medium bright pink, which is so lovely. And mm. birds really enjoy the nectar, I can tell you that. That's fantastic. All right. Well, that's very kind of you to bring in and let people know about that. And I hope the event goes well and that you're, you get a standing ovation at the end, Jill. So oh, well, no, 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 we don't have a standing ovation. <laughs> we have a tussy musty. <laughs> do people know what a tussy musty is? I well, do I, now, Jill. Uh, well, I certainly know what a tussy musty is. I, I was introduced to those many years ago, so I sort of understand what they are. Uh, but maybe many of our listeners don't know what a tussy musty is. I don't well, know. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll organise a speaker or a demonstration on how to make tussy musties what a good and idea. Maybe, maybe we'll do it on, on, a, uh, you know, on, a, on a Saturday uh, at, at Burnley or somewhere else. Yeah, what a good good idea. Yes, those old skills are slowly disappearing, so that would be good. All right, Jill, well, thank we're... you. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Well... Uh, Craig, Craig, thanks for speaking to us uh, last, you know, last time. That was lovely. It was Everybody a pleasure. And the plants are just exotic. Thank Good. you. <laughs> All right, we'll catch okay. up with you again, Jill. Thanks. All right, bye. bye. All right, so that was Jill, who is, of course, a very regular caller in. She's very good at PRing the Herb Society. Um, 
And that does raise another issue. I think people often forget that there's a huge resource there uh, of lots of specialist societies out mm-hmm. in, the, in the place. I mean, there's Begonia Society. There is, indeed. Uh, there's, you know, the Camellia Research Society. Um, there's Cacti and Succulent Societies. There's all sorts of specialist groups out there. And they're a wonderful source of information and quite often plant material. Yeah, and a vast body of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, you know, who better to talk to about your dahlias than somebody who's been growing and exhibiting them for the last 50 years or something. If you want to know something about a group of plants, mm-hmm. the organisation that sort of specialises in them I think is a great idea. Um, and a lot of them are struggling these days because people don't seem to be time poor and they're not spending as much time involving themselves with, with organisations like that. So uh, it would be... A, Great disservice to horticulture if some of those places had to close up. But absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the Herb Society seems to be a good active group. Uh, yeah, they seem they to be keeping themselves going well. They had a good number of members when I was yeah. talking there. Yeah, that's mm. good. Yes, you do get a bit embarrassed, or I think the club gets a bit embarrassed if you arrive to do a talk for them at some little country garden club and there's sort of six ladies sitting out the front, yes. three of them knitting. Um, yeah. So, um, yes, good active clubs. They're, they're really worthwhile. But and you I'm know what? Even if there's only six, there's always one person who's interested. Of course there is. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. she's the one sitting right at the front yeah. with her, her hand behind her ear, yeah. uh, listening in attentively. Yeah, yeah. So, that's right. Yes, it's definitely worth it if you can. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I just mentioned something I did yesterday, just in passing. Um, Tim Entwistle and I were invited up to uh, Clunes, mm. because at Clunes at the moment they've got their big book festival going on. And it's a charming country town. It's really, really pretty. And it was buzzing yesterday. Uh, there were people everywhere. There were books being sold. Uh, they had a series of lectures going on, uh, of which ours was one. Um, you have to book for all these things, of course, because of the COVID things. They've got to have numbers right and all those sorts of things. Um, but we had a, a, as full a house as you can get for our talk, which was sort of talking about... Uh, well, Tim wanted to talk about his book he wrote some time ago about the seasons and you know how we should be having um, uh, several seasons in the year instead of four. Um, and so, you know... He's got names for them all where he's connected, you know, winter and spring together and, and, and spring and summer together and all those sorts of things. So we discussed that and we also discussed um, uh, the impacts that um, climate change is having and some of the interesting work the Botanic Gardens and others are doing on assessing trees for what they will cope with as you enter climate change mm-hmm. further and further. And that was fascinating. Apparently there will be in due course, it's not out there yet, but there will be... Um, a sort of an app that you can get where you can run the names of different trees through it and it will give you a green zone for trees that should manage to keep going into climate change at certain levels and then there'll sort of be an amber and a, and a red zone for, for trees that aren't likely to be able to manage in no. the long term in, in the climate zones, which will be particularly useful for public gardens and botanic gardens. But I think it has a certain... Um, import for home gardeners, particularly seeing as climate change change seems to be hitting us faster than we thought it might. Yeah, I think it's very important for home gardeners. Yeah, Yeah, certainly when it comes to trees and things that are going to be around for 50 and 100 years. Yeah, Uh, you you want to make a choice, and that's something we discussed yesterday, you do want to make a choice that in fact um, uh, has got a chance of longevity. I mean, if you're planting a, a vegetable or you're planting a perennial in the garden, well, you haven't put a huge amount of money into it, and if it doesn't manage as time goes on, it's not the end of the world. But um, Certainly, this is going to keep uh, people very, very busy over the next two or three hundred years. I, I, in fact, I was 
uh, sitting here chatting with John Arnott. Uh, yeah. uh, oh, 12, 18 months ago, a conversation that's been preying on my mind ever since. He was talking about the um, um, the uh, ecosystems sitting on the top of mountains in Queensland and New South Wales mm. that are isolated, uh, very, very isolated from the next uh, um, uh, ecosystem, if you like, and, and, and these are... Uh, uh, full of plants which uh, grow over two or three acres and nowhere else in, on earth and uh, with climate change of course um, yeah, they, no these way, things yeah. uh, they can't move up the top of the mountain they're already on top of the mountain yeah, exactly. and so there's there's hundreds maybe thousands of species that are running out of room right now yeah. and so there's work uh, teams racing around trying to rescue these plants as we speak yeah Yes, it's a, it's a very worrying time, I have to say, mm. from that perspective. Uh, and uh, that also sort of raises the point, too, that if we've got all of these rarities out there that need protecting, maybe we shouldn't be planting yet another iceberg rose, but we should be looking at... Um, and I'm sorry I picked on just one obvious plant. Yeah, lovely uh, roses. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, we can, in fact, help a little bit by filling our gardens up with interesting rare things because even if they don't survive long-term in our own gardens, we're encouraging the nursery industry to grow to these grow things instead of the you know, mass-produced stuff that's out there. Yeah. Um, and just maybe some of these plants will hang on in cultivation if they don't make it in the wild. Uh, it's all about diversity thing. and, and uh, oh, gosh, yes. one of the things that uh, I'm finding more and more intriguing is that uh, these peri-urban areas, so I'm talking about uh, uh, suburban areas right on the edge of suburbs, yeah. uh, so uh, Dandong's a, a spectacular example and also Mount Maston mm-hmm. where you have native um, uh, bush uh, right next to um, gardens. Um, that uh, the diversity that, that, that as a consequence of people planting their gardens with whatever they want to plant yes. has, has actually been reflected in the fauna. Mm. And uh, in the last uh, few weeks, we've, we've been spotting a little beastie running around Crowd Hill and, and, um, um, and uh, a number of people have seen this little thing. Mm. We're, we're trying to figure out whether it's a bandicoot or a potteroo. Uh, Have you spotted anything, Craig? No, I I haven't. I would have thought foxes would clean them up very quickly. Well, there's been a big effort to reduce foxes, and of course cats are uh, not uh, supposed to be roaming around in the wild as well. So so the predators are more or less under control, uh, much more so than, say, 20 years back. And these these beasties are... uh, um, uh, starting to appear. We're, we're just trying to figure out what, what on earth we're seeing. It sort of zips from one border to another across um, the path and no one's quite figured out exactly what it is, but it's something we've only seen in the last few weeks. Need a little camera. Yeah. Yes, well, well exactly right. Sensor yeah. cameras or something like that right. to pick it up and see what yeah. it is. I might, uh, might add, I was visiting um, WA uh, uh, a year or two back. Uh, uh, my sister-in-law who lives in the hills above Perth and, uh, and she picked us up from the airport, and I was saying, well, how's life treating you, Trish? And she says, oh, fine, except for the Fasca Gales. The Fasca Gales? Uh, yeah, so I was desperately trying to remember what, what on earth a Fasca Gale was. Um, anyway, it turned out there was one running around her veranda as we arrived, and it, it looked like a little possum, yeah. a very, very handsome little beastie, and a small possum. Mm. And it, it just sat and watched us. And, and in fact, there was a... 
there was a stepladder just nearby, so I pulled the stepladder across and got right up to within a metre of it, and it just stood, it just sat on its rafter the whole time watching me. I could, I could pack this thing if I wanted to. <laughs> anyway, uh, a good thing I didn't because I uh, googled the Fasca gale and discovered, in fact, it's a marsupial predator with an amazing bite, as, yeah. as so many of the marsupial predators have. And it would have taken the end of my finger off if I tried to pat it. And, and, and it's a very savage predator. Now, Fasca gales are, were always incredibly rare, and they're supposed mm. to come from the extreme southwest of WA. And they've been moving into peri-urban areas, and they are so fierce that they actually, domestic cats will turn around and run for their lives when dealing with well, a Fasca gale. Well, so so a what are they doing that's causing problems, eating people's chooks? Or? Uh, well, in this case, uh, they moved into the roof space and oh, chased out all the, uh, the monitor lizards and the, uh, and the brush-tailed possums, mm. I mean, which are about ten times the size of a Fasca mm. gale. <laughs> These things are ferocious. They're oh. tiny and ferocious. And uh, highly athletic, and and don't for goodness sake ever pat one. <laughs> oh dear, I think I'd rather have a fasci gale actually than a brushtail possum. But anyhow, uh, I might have that they themselves look like a miniature brushtail possum. They, they, they've got to, they, their tails literally uh, have, a, have a brush-like a look to it. Mm, They're very handsome beasties. Oh, fantastic. Oh, well, it's nice to know some of our native animals are at least yeah. hanging in there. Yeah, that's right. I, I tell you what, though, one of the exotic animals that's starting to cause us some grief up at Mount Macedon, and I think it's the same in the Dandenongs, are the feral deer. Oh, I, I kind of knew where you were heading with that one, yes. Yeah. That is a big worry. Oh. Huge, huge concern. Yeah, well, up at Alton, the garden I was talking about earlier, I was up there having a bit of a wander around the other day, and the gardener had taken some tree guards away from around some large conifers that yeah. had been in for quite some years, and the deer have come in and just rubbed all the bark off the trunks. They've That's just right. destroyed them. Yeah. Uh, thousands of dollars worth of conifers have just yeah. gone down the Googler. It was supposed to be a lovely sort of pinetum that was being developed up there, and almost all of them have been completely ringbarked. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's uh, a bit scary. It, it, it limits what you can grow to mm. just a small handful of plants. Yeah. Yeah. A tiny, tiny handful of I've seen American and Californian books listing deer-proof plants, and it's a very, very short list indeed. Uh, But also, Jeremy, the the, the deer-proof plants that they list, that doesn't necessarily translate into Australia. I mean, you see on the American lists, top of it is a, a Cuba. Well, I put a Cuba in at Long Acres, and they were defoliated in a night. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, well, we're, do- uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're talking about doing replanting at, at Alton. Yeah. And what we're going to do is we're going to select a section and we're just going to fence it. You have to, it's the only way. And so yeah. we'll put things in a fenced area and hopefully over the years they'll get big enough to at least have some resistance yeah. to, to deer attack. Um, because otherwise, it, you know, we'll never be able to plant anything That's in your right. garden. Yeah. I know all about it. It's, it's seriously worrying. Yeah. And, uh, Yes, they should be on somebody's dinner table as venison, unfortunately. But, but you know what, the, the, the damage that they're doing in our gardens is one problem, but what they're doing in the forests yeah. is another altogether. Yeah. You know, I mean, they target particular species, bark or leaves, and just keep going back to them until they're dead. Yeah. 
they wallow in the waterways, yeah, just turn so them into a muddy sink. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. it's awful. Yeah. yeah, so that's the trouble with exotic animals of those sort of ilk. Once they mm. get out, um, they can cause all sorts of grief. Yeah. And deer will live in a huge range of habitats. So yeah. you know, yeah. they, they, they are a very adaptable group of animals and yeah. probably should never have been brought into the country, but it's all too late now. <laughs> so it's like poor old New Zealand and the Australian possums. Uh, yeah. they, they've caused so much grief over there and so have the deer I mean the yeah. deer in New Zealand uh, I mean they just browse all the young seedlings off through the forest so that there's no regeneration in some well, cases well that's right they've got chamois and Himalayan tar up in the southern Alps yeah. right yeah, up the you know up the top of the mountains you've got to think you've got to wonder what they were thinking at the time when they imported some of these animals yeah. oh, it would be really nice to have something that we can hunt right up the top of the mountain <laughs> I mean really <laughs> you do wonder but then you know foxes fall into that category they as certainly well. do you know, what yeah. was the thinking there yeah. we can put our pink jackets on and go tally-hoeing across the countryside will be anyhow our ancestors were strange people and we're probably in in a hundred <laughs> years time we'll be seen as pretty strange for the things we've been doing i'm sure now we haven't got anybody ringing in at the moment so if you are thinking of ringing and asking us a question uh why don't you ring us on nine four one nine zero one double five that's nine four one nine zero one double five uh or you can text us on zero four triple eight Zero nine eight double five. So we'd love to hear from you. And Jeremy, you want to say something? Well, if there was a gap in the conversation, I, I, I just wanted to mention there's a uh, exhibition of paintings. There I saw Cloud Hill done by Joe Reitz. Yeah. Now, uh, you're familiar with her no, work? No, I'm not familiar with her work. Ah, she's, she's been around. She, she's been teaching. Uh, I think she taught art at... Uh, at uh, one or two of the secondary colleges years back, and oh, right. and, and then then um, set up art classes, and uh, has been doing that for many years. Um, she came along to Cloud Hill, oh, I think about ten, twelve years ago, mm-hmm. and asked whether it would be fine to paint the garden, which she set about doing. In in so she uh, didn't turn uh, the roses uh, red uh, with paint. No. Uh, <laughs> she sat with her easel and painted and painted and painted. Oh, <laughs> it was. Slightly embarrassing the, 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 the sheer enthusiasm and and uh, and these very dramatic paintings. Um, um, I'm, I'm trying to think what style, uh, but uh, certainly uh, lots of drama. Yeah. Um, but they're not. Uh, com- they're then, not completely abstract paintings. Oh no no they're, no they're, no. They're they're they're, they're realistic paintings. Mm. Um, the, the, the. Anyway, there's an exhibition of her work. I think of about fifteen twenty paintings, oh, and, right. and almost entirely of Cloud Hill, um, on at Ocean Grove at a gallery at Ocean Grove called the Hive. It actually opened yesterday. Ah. Um, it's on for the next month. Um, it's, uh, the, the gallery um, is uh, fairly well known on the, that, that part of Victoria, the, yeah. the surf coast. Um, they, they also exhibit the woolly wildlife bronzes. Oh, yes, yes. Um, and um, one or two other things. Um, anyway, Joe's um, paintings are for sale. Um, they'll be um, on display through until the end of uh, May. Oh. And so anyone um, touring around the surf coast, uh, pop yes. into the hive at Ocean Grove and have a look. Fantastic. All right, well, I know exactly who you mean. I follow her on Instagram. She's oh. very active on Instagram. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's go. exactly right. The no, penny just dropped. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, she's uh, she's quite well known yeah. and uh, does quite amazing work. 
All right. Well, we better go into some calls. They're suddenly coming in here, guys. So here we go. Um, we have Maria in Mount Waverley. Good morning, Maria. Yes, good morning. Um, I'm interested in the begonias. I just the one you were talking about. I wonder if that is available. Uh, the, the one I got the cutting of. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got a few. Oh, of the, the cutting. Yeah. Um, yes. I have a few at the nursery. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What What is your address? One three eight. Alinda Monbolt Road. Alinda Monbolt Road. Yes. In Alinda. Yeah, in Alinda, yes. Yeah. And um, can I, do I have to ring first before I come? No, I'm there 10 to 5 every day except Tuesday. Okay, thank you very much. No That's problem. a pleasure, Maria. That so, was a very, very easy one. So, so just down the, the road from Cloud Hill, That's actually. Right, yeah. Pop in to Cloud Hill on your way. All right, well, we better keep moving along. So, oops, which one? Ah, oh, there we go. Uh, good morning, Drew from Montmorency. How are you today? Good, thank you. Um, thank you for taking my call. That's a pleasure. Um, I've got some fantastic chilies growing, and there's a mass of fruit, mm-hmm. but they just seem so tardy in ripening. I'm wondering, is it the weather? Um, and should I be patient? <laughs> We're all nodding here, which of course you can't see. Um, <laughs> but yes, it, it is the weather. We haven't had a good summer for any of those tropical fruits. So your chilies, your tomatoes, a lot of people are just starting to get their tomato crops really hitting their strides now. Uh, the eggplants and the chilies. Um, but you can use the chilies even when they're fairly immature too, so don't hesitate to use them, uh, even if they're not fully ripe. Uh, It has been a cool summer. All our tomatoes turn into green tomato chutney. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everybody needs that recipe. Oh, dear. So, yeah, look, uh, I guess, Drew, it's just what it is. Yep, and um, and whilst we're getting this beautiful weather at the moment, I suppose there's an opportunity for them to keep um, pushing towards ripeness. Oh, yes, yes. mild. Yeah, yeah, as long as we don't get a, he- a really heavy frost set in too frost. quickly, yeah. uh, we should be fine. So, um, yeah, so just yeah, right. hang in there, Drew. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, um, all right. Well, we've got another one. We might as well just keep going for the moment by the looks of things. Um, Sharon from Cheltenham, are you there? Good morning. Good morning. How can we help? Yeah, well, I mean, um, over the years, our garden has become just largely trees. Mm -hmm. Um, We've done away with daisies and things that need a lot of pruning due due to hand issues. Um, And that's great, but we're not getting any little birds to the garden. We're just getting magpies, and that's all. And it wasn't until I listened last week to the gardening show and she mentioned... Um, flowers bringing birds to the garden mm-hmm. and I spoke to someone that lives 300 yards away and she does get wattle birds that I thought oh maybe I need to think about some shade flowering plants other than corries I've got quite a few corries and they're not bringing the little birds in no we don't see we always got as noisy miners and magpies Mm. And a very shaded garden, which we like. Uh, Jeremy was just talking about fuchsia magellanica. Uh, I'll write that down. That, yeah. that, that 
always brings the spinebells into my garden. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The fuchsias are good for that. They, yeah. they will bring in the, the small birds. Yeah. Um, n- another plant that brings them into my garden, and it's happy in sun or semi-shade, I wouldn't put it in really dense shade, but it's the plant once called a butylin megapotamicum, uh-huh. uh, which is a small archy shrub, uh, or you can run it up as a climber. works yeah. very well as a climber. Uh, there's a variegated leaf one that has yellow spots all over the leaves, and it has red calyxes with yellow petals hanging out of it uh, and if my plant of that abutilin isn't rattling with um, uh, eastern spinebills and New Holland honey eaters and even uh, white cheeked honey eaters mm. most of the time uh, I'd be surprised and it flowers nearly all year round uh, it's a rangy plant it's yeah, not actually a terribly neat plant uh, but it certainly brings the small birds in so I think, I think the, the abutilin megapotamicum oh Okay. Bit of a mouthful, I'm sorry, but there you go. I didn't name no, it. I got it. Yeah. I think the, uh, the, the trick uh, might be to look at the trees and see if you can uh, remove lower branches and a little bit, little bit more sunshine in as well. The, uh, certainly the small birds all need, they, they like bushy, prickly cover. Uh, to protect them uh, yeah. from the magpies. If, if you've got magpies, you've got nice big open spaces, which is what the magpies yeah. like. So you need to little, somehow encourage a little bit more sunshine in and then, then find plants that will produce a good, solid ground cover. Maybe put a bird bath or two in. And, uh, We've got a bird bath. Yeah. Really? They, they, well, the small birds like a bird bath tucked in underneath shrubs. That's right. Not, not out ah. in the open. Otherwise, they'll uh, be too nervous about the magpies and they won't go near it. But they like to be able to work their way down to the bird bath. So, you know, they'll jump on something high and then they'll come down a bit lower and then a bit lower. So you need to have sort of layers of foliage around it. Yeah, so... Um, I need to think like a little bird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, Yes, go out in the garden and do some twittering around yeah. and see what you can come up with. But there are lots of plants that will grow in the shade and you just need to get as much difference in texture, form, yeah. shape. Uh, Jeremy mentioned prickly. Uh, if you can find some things that have reasonably dense, twiggy, prickly branches, there's actually a berberus that would do that job for you very well in the shade called Berberus Julianae Spring Glory. Uh, it's an evergreen berberus with quite big thorns on it and the little birds will go in amongst that and it also gets flowers that they'll visit yeah. uh, so it's a multi-purpose plant uh, you just don't want to back into it when you're weeding and, and salvia no. phyllis fancy will take a reasonable amount of shade yeah. not full yeah, shade salvia phyllis fancy right. and it's, it, it's, it's an absolute spinebill magnet at my place they actually nest next to it yeah. Yeah. Having, I mean, having a, a few small, really dense prickly plants is, 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 it makes all the difference. Mm. Yeah, as far as a, a small bird is concerned, it, it's got to have its tidy holes and mm. it'll, it'll uh, venture out uh, when there's no magpies around. As soon as it sees the magpie, it wants to be ducking into a berberus as quickly as possible. <laughs> and so you've got to have a, a few of these plants scattered around. Yeah. All right. I hope that gives you a little bit of help, Sharon. Yes, thank you. Um, what was that um, marsupial, I suppose it was, the fast that you were just speaking of in Western Australia? Fast- Oh, the fastigales. Oh, the fastigales, yes. yes. Uh, it's a How pH. It begins that? with a pH. Oh, oh. And now I'm trying to remember how it goes. Uh, a pH, A, S, uh, C-O-G-A-L-E, roughly. <laughs> if you type it into Mr. Google, it'll come up, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Now, in the old days, they were found in a very limited area in the extreme southwest, and they 
and amazingly, despite cats, foxes and heaven knows, they're expanding their range. They're on the march. Yeah, mm. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, well, we'll catch up with you again. Sharon, we better move on because we've got a couple more thank calls you. we have to get to. All right. Yeah, thank Bye. You. All right. Uh, I guess we go to Bernard now. Are you there, there Bernard? Bernard from yes, Langwarren? Yep. Uh, <coughs> yes, thank you. You want to yes. ask about salvias. What do, particularly did you want to know? Yeah, I, I have got some red flowering, which I'm very happy with, uh, but they are getting a bit straggly, and I want to know uh, pruning them, mm-hmm. how hard, and when, and can I at the moment move a couple? All right, so there's three questions there, basically. Right. <laughs> Go on, guys. What do we do? Well, prune, pruning you can do. I mean, I don't think they like being pruned in the winter that much. So you do the, prune them while they're growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as hard as you want. Yes, late so, spring, early summer. Yeah. yeah. And again, I mean, I'd usually give mine a prune like in late December for the, for the autumn flowering. So they come back and flower mm-hmm. in the autumn. And moving, it depends a little bit on the uh, salvia, but uh, most of them move reasonably well. But again, I'd move them at that time of the year. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, they're, they're, they're pretty easy to propagate. So if you want one somewhere else, yeah. just just do some cuttings. Yeah, yeah that, or that you can not. stick a spade through the clump even yeah. and take half the clump that's and right. put it somewhere else, can't yeah. you? Yeah, certainly with the herbaceous varieties, mm. uh, that that uh, they're dead easy. Yeah. yeah. I hope that gives you some ideas on that, Bernard. Does that help? Yeah, I've only got the red flowering. You can get other ones. Oh, you can get... <laughs> Salvias come in almost every colour you can imagine. There's blues, there's whites, there's pinks, there's magentas, um, uh, there's yellows, there's brown. Um, well, this is about 900 species. So yeah, it's right. then there's a mighty lot of hybrids. I think yeah. they're up to several thousand hybrids yeah. now. So yeah, don't get too excited, Bernard, yeah. and try and collect them all <laughs> because yeah. you just won't have room for them. And and they vary uh, in terms of garden suitability. I've only got a unit, so no problem. <laughs> <laughs> That'll hold All you right, back. Thanks very much indeed for your time. That's a pleasure, Bernard. All right, now. Uh, all right, we've got another one coming in, so we might as well go straight to Laurel in Torquay. Are you there? Oh, hello, Steve. Yes, Laurel here. All right, Laurel, how can we help you this morning? Uh, well, I was lucky enough to pick up some bunion pine nuts the other day at a... a, a, a a botanic garden that shall not be named. <laughs> and, yep. and I'm wondering if there's any chance I could strike them because I just love growing plants. <laughs> easy. I, I've, I've raised... Yeah, they're very easy to propagate as long as they're big fat nuts that have obviously got a, an embryo in them because sometimes they'll be sterile. But if it's got a big right. fat nut with a sort of a bract on the top of it, uh, and what you do is you use a good quality normal potting mix. You put it right. in a container of an appropriate size depending on how many seeds you've got to sow. Uh, and right. all you do is you stick the seed into it about halfway down from the pointy end with the bract sticking up. Right, so I don't break it out of that hard case? No, no, leave it in the hard case, uh, right. but as individual seeds. You obviously don't sow the whole cone. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> I've only got the individual seeds. Yeah, well, if you've got the individual seeds and you stick them into around about halfway down, you don't have to be too scientific about this, into your potting okay. mix with the bracts sticking up in the air. And what they generally do is they'll send down a root and that will then push mm-hmm. the, the whole seed out, the whole seed coat out of the ground, and then they'll eventually shuck off the the seed 
and then the, the needles will pop out. Their initial sort of cotyledon needles will come out. And then you've got a baby bunya pine. And then you've got oh the issue God. of finding out where you're going to plant it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. well, I'm lucky in that regard. I've got plenty of space. It won't be an issue. Yeah, well, they are very, very dramatic and handsome trees. And I'm glad to see a few people are planting them because they were very popular in Victorian times. Yeah. And so we're living with the oh. legacy of these huge old bunya pines that were planted way back. Um, yes. And it's nice to see some people planting some new ones. Although I have to say, I've never been able to quite work out why so many were planted in institutes where um, uh, the mentally insane were locked away. Because <laughs> um, uh, up at Beechworth, at uh, Mayday Hill, which was an asylum, as they called them back then, uh, there's some big bunya pines. Uh, and at Kew Cottages, there was some big bunya pines there. I don't know whether it was to get rid of patients or to inc- increase the patient level. Uh, they, they do put a fence around them as, as the nuts are dropping in, in places like Sydney where yeah. they, they produce a lot of nuts. Yeah. Yeah, and of course they're edible. Yes, well, that may have been part of the reason, but they are such a curiosity as a pine mm-hmm. themselves. Oh, they? wonderful looking trees. They look amazing. Yeah, yeah thank you so and much. And they're very tough, so there you go. All right, well... All right. Um, now, one more thing. Oh. Can I just mention, um, about 20 years ago, I um, saw a fascicle. We were staying in a log cabin just outside Dalesford, of all places, and oh. um, the jolly thing came in at night and was ratting through the kitchen, knocking <laughs> things over, and, <laughs> and was behaving like a rat. But it was a fascicle. definitely had that big bushy tail. <laughs> yeah, the, the tails are the giveaway. They're yeah. very, very bushy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, oh it's done, because I thought, we don't have squirrels. <laughs> and we don't, thank God. Uh, that's the last thing we want to be importing into Australia is grey squirrels. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I could almost live with red squirrels, I reckon, but not grey ones. In fact, oh, that, in fact that was my right. conversation with my sister-in-law. I was like, what is a Fascagale trash instead? Oh, well, it's a squirrel, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> squirrel. <laughs> and said, you don't want to pet the squirrel. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for ringing in, Laurel, and we'll hopefully thank catch up soon. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Thank you. All right. Well, we haven't got any more calls coming in at the moment. We've got about another 10 minutes to run. So, Jeremy, you're waving a branch <laughs> around in your hand. We yes. might as well yeah, go to that. A rather wilted branch of, of uh, um, the Enchianth, that's Perilatus. Uh, oh, I wish you wouldn't do this. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I, well, there's no English name for this. No, I don't mean that so much. It's the fact that uh, virtually none of us have it for sale. It's, it's, uh, yeah, well, it's, a, it's a cow of a thing to propagate. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, we have three of them, mm. and, uh, they, they, and they're part of our historic group of plants that came in from the Yokohama Nursery uh, back in the late 20s. So they're, they're of significance for about umpteen reasons. Yeah. Uh, they're coming up 100 years old, or they're around about 100 years old. And the big one we have is, is much the same size as they ever grow in Japan. Goodness. It is colossal, and right now it is, is a brilliant crimson. Mm. Uh, it's just, uh, well, it, it's green during the summer. has little bell flowers in the spring, green, small leaves in the summer. And the leaves gradually sink into a deep purple and suddenly flush to crimson. Mm. And when it's in bright crimson, there is no other autumn colouring plant <laughs> that you could ever see as, as brilliant as this plant. Um, and ours is just hitting its uh, straps right now. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, yeah, we, we have three of them. There's, yeah, the Enchianthus perillatus is... is uh, 
huge pain. I, I'm, I'm sure Teddy Woolrich um, imported it from Yokohama back in the, eight, the 1920s, thinking he'd make a killing on this amazing autumn colouring plant. Yeah. And number one discovered that no, he cut, couldn't propagate it. No. Uh, and number two, it'll only grow in the Dandong Cement Well, that, that, was, that was the other thing I was going to say. This isn't a plant for people around Melbourne to get terribly excited yeah. about because your chances of growing any of the Encanthus in Melbourne, except for maybe Quinquifolius, the evergreen one from Hong Kong, because it comes from a slightly warmer climate, but it doesn't do autumn colour anyway, yeah. uh, that might work all right in Melbourne. But most of the Encanthus is like a cold, chilly winter. They like an acid soil, coolish environment. They're not necessarily the easiest, are they? Yeah, there, there's uh, two or three other species, Campanulatus and Deflexus, mm. and, uh, which are easier to propagate, and uh, mm. I, I guess you'd have them occasionally, Steve. Oh, I yeah, know yeah. Uh, Peter Teese uh, propagates the occasional small batch at uh, yeah. your mean a rare plant. It's, it's definitely a but plant for the connoisseur yeah. who happens mm. to live in the Dandenongs or Macedon, probably. They'd probably grow quite well up in Victoria's northeast. Um, I always have Campanulatus. It's yeah. easy to propagate. Yeah, that one seems to be yeah. quite simple, but yes, I've, I've struck Perilatus a few times, but it's yeah. really hard to get them on to the next level where they'll actually then grow on. So um, uh, it is going to always be a challenging plant, uh, and one would hope that if you're desperate enough to get one and you find one in a nursery that you're prepared to pay the price for it as well yeah. because you know, it's not the sort of plant that you'll ever make commercial. Just come along and see ours. Well, that's the other thing. I was going to say, Jeremy, that's true. I mean, there's plants we can't grow, but if we know where they are growing, mm. it can be just about as good to go and visit yeah. somebody else's and, and ooh and ah over When you short. see one 100 years old, it, oh, there's, it is unearthly. It is mm. truly, truly unearthly. But somebody must have been propagating them with some... Uh, yeah, because they are in old gardens. Yeah. I always presume that they uh, were layering them, uh, yeah, aerial layering yeah. them in the old days because, well, yes, I've seen a few in old gardens yeah. in the Dandenongs. Well, I've actually got one in the nursery garden that was a layer mm-hmm. that was produced from a friend's plant down around the corner who's now long gone, Barney, but uh, he had a nice perilatus in the garden and he was playing with layering and when he passed away, his daughter and I were able to dig a couple of layers out of his garden um, uh, that I've taken. But layering, of course, is slow and not very oh, commercially worthwhile. Yeah, I've, I've, yes, you, you have to sell the blinking plant for several hundred dollars yeah. in, a, in, a, in a tiny pot. Yeah, I think that if you lay in perilatus, you'd be more inclined to plant it in your own garden. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Uh, uh, but there's quite a number of them around Mount Macedon as well. There's a huge one in the Denira estate, which is uh, it's probably one of the peak plants in the garden there when it's in colour in the autumn. It's got to be three metres tall by oh, about wow. three metres wide. It is just mm. enormous. It's the biggest yeah. one I've ever seen, although I have to say I haven't noticed the ones at Cloud Hill, so I must check them out next time yeah. I'm up there. Oh. Yeah, Show so you around, Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think I should do another visit up there. It's about time. I haven't been up for ages. Um, but it is nearly all the big gardens on Mount Macedon have one somewhere. Yeah. And my theory is that um, it was the Sangster and Taylor Nursery, which was the main nursery we had at Mount Macedon back in the 1890s through to about the 1920s, I think. Uh, and William Sangster also landscaped quite a few of the big parks and gardens around Melbourne. Uh, he had a, a, a branch in Turak. Um, so he was quite influential. And I've got this vision of him sitting down at his desk at night with a lovely copper plate type script 
writing to all the wealthy garden owners of Mount Macedon and saying, have I got a, an Enchianthus for you? No. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, in those days they were importing things direct from overseas because we yeah. didn't have quarantine. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and I know the Sangsters were importing things and they'd import a batch of something. They'd plant out stock plants to grow on and propagate from, but they'd sell off the part of the batch of the original crop they bought in yeah. uh, at huge expense. Um, and um, that was one of the ways that they got some of these plants out and about. Yep, and I'm sure that was happening in the Dandongs as well. What about air layering? Well, it could be done, I'm sure, but I, I struggle with air layering because you've got to keep an eye on it all you've the got time. To keep an eye on yeah, it, yeah. If it dries out, well, then it stops, and you know, there's all sorts yeah. of issues with it. But air then layering. for something super special like that, mm. Mm. yeah, it could be worthwhile. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to have a go again shortly. I'm going to have another crack at them. I do it every three or four years. I go right. I'm going to have another go at this thing because um, it is one of those plants I'd love to be able to stock and sell. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if I ever manage to get a decent crop of perilatas going, they will be expensive. It's just no two ways about it, and I, and I won't feel any qualms about what I'd charge for them. But I wouldn't sell them just to anybody either. Uh, oh, the, no, because there's no point in selling them if they're going to die. Yeah, exactly, and that's yeah. exactly what's likely to happen yeah. with a lot of these things. So uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, sell them on to just anybody. So, yeah, so I'm sorry we've been talking about a plant that most people out there probably won't have heard of, and won't be able to buy, uh, and even if they could, they probably won't be able to grow it. But go to Cloud Hill and visit it. That's right. That's what you yeah. need to do. I mean, I like visiting tropical countries to see the plants that grow there, knowing perfectly well I can't grow them, so that's not an issue for me. I mean, I don't have to be able to grow everything I like to look at. Yeah, I remember, I remember someone saying that they never went to art galleries because uh, if they liked the painting, they really wanted to take it home. And what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, that so she, so she never walked into art galleries. So, oh, wow. That's weird. Uh, yeah, it's I mean, seriously weird. Yeah, that is a yeah, strange but, person, yeah, whoever that is. Yeah, I hope they're not listening. Of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, another state and another time. Oh, and, yeah, right, so yeah. I, and I've, I've, I've been, that's uh, all I can think about whenever I've, think of this particular person. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, no, I think that's an odd attitude. I mean, people yeah. do come to Mount Macedon and to the Dandenongs just to look at the beautiful yeah, exactly. autumn leaves, yeah. knowing full well that they can't really grow them. So, you know, why indeed would you um, do otherwise? I mean, you wouldn't stay away from the Dandenongs just because you can't grow an Enchianthus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, certainly at the moment, it's, uh, I'm sure this is true for Mount Macedon and many of the... Uh, uh, the, these areas that it's just an extraordinary season and um, uh, worthwhile taking a half a day off and having a drive in the countryside yeah. it's just a glorious autumn all right now if we've got another plant or two to finish off with we've got uh, a couple of minutes to go before the uh, end of the program there you go, Stephen. you'll love this one. Oh, what have we got here Dano rosmosa oh yes yeah now that is a good plant. It's a good plant. Yeah, it's 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 a dry shade plant. Yeah, um, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it was um, Tarkacoka. Yeah, it has that sort of look about it. It's yeah. a very elegant, archy plant. Yeah. But it's not strictly speaking a shrub, is it? It's an evergreen perennial. That's right. That's what they everything says. It's a perennial. Yeah. 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 And uh, actually, I've got some historical information on that. It's called Alexandrian laurel in Europe. Right. And 
It's called that because it is actually the plant that was used to make the laurel wreaths for the Olympiads. Okay. So, because I always thought, how the hell do you turn a laurel? Because we think of laurels as cherry laurels yeah. and Portuguese well, laurels. It's a bay laurel. Yeah. Which yeah. is a pretty, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're all stiff, stiff, hard sort of yeah, plants. Exactly. And how on earth Very would, uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> you stick it on somebody's head and they'd be impaled. Yeah. But the Danae is quite soft in its wood because it's a, it's a perennial. It's actually yeah. not woody. Uh, and so you could, in fact, make quite a respectable laurel wreath from it. So the yeah. You go. And, and if you have the in the shade garden all these sort of chunky things like clivia and yeah. and acanthus and things with big leaves, then the Danae sits amongst them quite nicely. Yeah. Because yeah. it's quite feathery. Yeah, so there you yeah. go. So Danae racemosa. Um Oh, we've just had a dear friend of mine just walk into the studio. Good morning. Um, all right, we'll finish off with one more and then we'll have to go for the week and put up our theme music, which I'm hopefully going to do, and then put you into the next program. So one more plant. Oh, look, I bought a whole heap of hydrangea quercifolia, but Alice, I uh, think, is my favourite for its scale. Yeah. yeah. Huge. Huge. Yeah, so big, Alice, big Alice is a big girl, is she? Big girl, yeah. <laughs> big leaves, big grower, yeah, big spread. And, and tough. Right. And, and, and building up autumn tints or That's winter right. tints, really, yeah. right yeah. now. The, yeah. the, 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 those colours go the on for, for weeks and months. The oak leaf are remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, well, we might finish off the program for this week. Um, I won't be here next week. I think Virginia Haywood should be in here to run the program. Um, so thank you to the guys off-air that... Uh, brought in all the calls and, and came rushing in with a few notes for me to remind me to do certain things. Um, thank you to Jeremy from Cloud Hill. Thank you, of course, to Craig from Gentiana Nursery. And we're hoping we'll see you all again uh, very soon at 7.30 on a Sunday morning. Goodbye from us. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.